in the face of events that our society has had to deal with in the last little while. You know, the Wuhan flu, the rioting, the looting, the burning. And, you know, since it seems that the elites in our culture are determined to use all this as an excuse to become tyrants, let me introduce you to an adoptable attitude that may seem a little backwards, but it's also an attitude that could save the culture. This attribute is almost always considered a curse by some, and it may not be acceptable in a lot of circles, but it's also saved lives in the past. This mindset is looked down upon by those that consider themselves open-minded, or at least exclusive from the common rabble. Yet this characteristic also has saved individuals from certain death when fate has dealt them a dangerous hand, you know, like a plane crash or a snowstorm being lost at sea or lost in a mob. This trait has come through as a saving influence. Have I piqued your curiosity? Well... Better grab a coffee from the pot, pull up a camp chair, because you found your way to the fire of the enemy patrol. You have found the frequency of the enemy patrol podcast. Please stand by for new directions. Over. All right, welcome to the Fire of the Anime Patrol. I am the Anonic Ranger, your very own reality scout. As your scout, I give you information that you can use as you move ahead in this adventure called life. And since you're the general on this campaign, that is your life, it is you who makes the decisions, ultimately. Your humble reality scout just gives you the lay of the land, so to speak. So you can use my reports, or not. I just tell you what I see. If you want to know more what Anime Patrol is about, or a little bit more about myself, you can visit my website at anomicranger.com. And if you don't want to miss one of these Anime Patrol reports, you should subscribe, of course. If you want to send me an email, you can do so in the contact portion of my website, or you can send me an email direct to animepatrolhq at yahoo.com. If you like what I write or what I podcast, well, then go to wherever you listen to your podcast and give me a good rating. Subscribe. Put some comments in. But most importantly, share with a friend. You know, if you find somebody that you say, you know, this, this might help them get things sorted out, these little reports, well... Share it with them. And if you want to comment directly on my website, you will have to sign up to the website. Don't worry, I don't do anything with that information. It's just a way for me to keep a wall between myself and and all the spam out there. Anyway, this is season one, which I'm calling Scouting the Decline. And this is episode number nine. Big episode number nine. You know, one of the things when I before I started this, I was reading about about doing podcasts, and and that's the average for podcast fading. People getting tired of doing it is podcast nine. So I'm over this one, and I got a lot left in me to do. So 
I don't think I'm going to be fading anytime soon. I usually try and uh, put these up every two weeks. And I also write on my blog about every two weeks. So I got to put something out every week. And that seems to be about as much as I can do. Because, well, if you go on, on my website and you look at my about page, you'll see that I got a I have to work a job and I have a small farm and different things like that. So, yeah, life tends to uh, very much get in the way of of just uh, giving content. But So once a week, is, there'll be something there from me. But these podcasts are, will be every two weeks. So anyway, this is season one, and I've broken season one, each episode, down into three parts. So part number one, I call it the veneration of the normal man, and I look for a topic to help you to understand what it means to be normal, how important it is to be normal, how important it is to be ordinary. Number two section, I look for a a lie in our society, something that's prevalent, something that is a lie that is, you know, part of the narrative, and I pick it apart. And finally, number three, I give some practical steps, things you can do, little exercises, maybe stuff to read, something to ponder to help you increase your personal agency and to help you think more independently or at least to think differently. So today in the the veneration of the normal man, as you got from my intro, I'm going to be introducing you to a word. And that word is ornery. In the lie of the day that's going to be deflated is that our human rights come from our government. Now, I don't know of governments that will just actually print that. Your rights come from us, but it's definitely implied. So we're going to take a look at that one. And then how much time allows, we'll be looking at some practical steps that you can do, like I said. So let's just move right along here. And let's get into the veneration of the normal man and the word that describes... Maybe the way you need to be is ornery. So this word, ornery, um, is very much, I think, an American word. That's where that's where it come out of. That's the lexicon, and it helps if you put yourself a little American accent in there. Yeah, he's an ornery old cuss. And it sounds better that way, or at least I think it does anyway. But it definitely is used in my corner of the world as well, when somebody's ornery. And, you know, it's funny how that works. Usually what it means is is somebody that's cranky or grouchy or grumpy or hard-nosed or nasty or obstinate. Like, you know, an ornery mule. That's an ornery mule. But it also can sometimes be given as a good attribute. You know, someone who's ornery, they won't comply maybe they're also too stubborn to give up. Sometimes that's important. Sometimes just flying in the face of quote-unquote reality, you know, your life has got you down and you're just going to get ornery and you're just going to keep doing what you were doing and because that's what you think you should do. So the word is, is interesting in that way. And when I first looked into it, I was intrigued by the wordplay between ordinary and ornery. And 
I just thought it sounded good, you know, like ordinary orneriness. That's what I was going to title this, just plain old ordinary orneriness. But when I got looking into it, I discovered the word ornery is a variant of the word ordinary. So how did this happen? Well, it came about in the 19th century, this word, and it was um, kind of regional American speech, and then it just grew from there. So how did this happen? How did ordinary get turned into ornery? Well, I, <laughs> at least a fun way to maybe explain a possibility of where it come from, because I don't really know, is to start saying the word with a bit of a British accent. So if I can take you back to the time when the good King George, good old King George, was <laughs> still uh, king over the British colony of North America, and maybe a, um, a conversation between two British aristocrats about these dang colon- colonists that were that were getting uppity. And you put a British accent on. Now I'm going to try and do a British accent. I'm not very good at it, but it will help make my case. So here we go. So a soldier comes rushing into the to uh, the general's room and he says your excellency the ordinary people are starving you cannot comply with the tax to pay for the war and the tyrant leader responds well you tell those ordinary people that they will face the power of the crown and find those ordinary leaders and those ordinary people and put them to the rack so anyway you get the idea that if you put a little british i don't know what you call it twang in there that ordinary starts to sound like ordinary and then, of course, it would slowly be adopted by the people that eventually threw King George out as just being, yeah, dang it all, we're ornery, I know. So anyway, maybe that's how it come about. It was fun to do. So slowly, though, that, that word finds its way into the negative part of the lingo. He's so ornery you can't teach him anything progressive, for instance. So when it's spoken by those who are elite, or maybe by today's lingo you'd say woke, they're not using it in a good way. Well, he's so ornery, he'll, he, he can't learn anything. You know, you can imagine somebody saying, oh, those, those ordinary rednecks, they're so racist. They better comply with the new order of things. So I think maybe it's time to rediscover this word. It's maybe it's time to be ornery. Maybe it's far past time to get a little ornery draw your line in the sand and say, no further. You know, all this mask wearing and kneeling and statue destruction as they pull down the, you know, try and pull down the entire Western culture. It's time for the ordinary and the ordinary people to stand up and say, no, enough, enough is enough. Because it doesn't seem like the government's going to do it. It seems like everybody's quaking in fear to this, this rabble of wannabe communists. Because, you know, I don't know about you, but for myself, I have faith in the ordinary people. I have faith in the common man, the normal man. And so should you. Because if you think about it, the common ordinary people, what do they really want out of life? They want to be left alone, mostly. Just leave them alone. Let them build their businesses. Let them have their jobs. Let them raise their families. Give them schools where their kids can learn a good education. Give them places to shop so they can buy groceries. And they pretty much don't try and change the world. 
And then you have all these people that want to change the world. Well, maybe there's some things in the world that need changing, but the way this bunch is going about it, I don't like the way they're changing things. And if you're an ordinary person, you shouldn't like it either. So maybe it's time to get ornery and start saying no. Now, you know, how would I put it? It's not about just being contrary to people. You know, if you, if you know somebody, if you, you know, imagine two neighbors and they, and they both have front lawns, but one neighbor doesn't really care if the odd dandelion pokes up, he figures it's good for the bees. And the other one, he keeps his lawn just like a, a putting green and poisons anything that isn't grass. Well, these two could get fighting and there's really not much point in either one of them getting ornery. Maybe it's time that they, you know, one guy tries to control his dandelions a little bit and the other guy just, you know, live and let live as much as possible. It's not what I'm talking about. I'm not talking about just being contrary just for the sake of being contrary. I'm talking about a learned understanding of when to get ornery, when to draw that line in the sand. Because there's these people that they want to pull everything down and they're going to pull it down for the sake of like free college or the right to be a forever victim or reparations or free money or free health care. I don't know how they can actually look at themselves in the mirror and say the word free health care or free anything because everything comes from tax money and everybody gets taxed. So nothing is really free. What you're talking about is government control. So anyway, you can listen to some of my past episodes and get more talk just on that. So it's not just about being just contrary. That's, that's insane. It's about learning and understanding where you need to draw the line in the sand, where you need to start getting ornery. So to do that, I'm going to give a little bit of history here. We're going to go back in time. And for those of you that, that listen to these episodes and you've listened to all the episodes, you can go back to podcast number eight which was the last one that I did, and I gave you a homework assignment. And that homework assignment was learning and understanding what the Magna Carta is and what it meant, the significance of it. Because it's going to be important right now. That's what I'm going to be talking about, the Magna Carta. What was it? Well, it was a, a charter or it was a, it was a paper that everybody was supposed to agree on, a concept, an idea. And it is 805 years ago that the Magna Carta came in. And essentially what it was, was the people decided that the king just wasn't all that. Decided that the king needed some limitations on his power. Now, when I use the word the people, I have to put it in quotation marks because at the time that it was written, it wasn't written for the common person. It was written for the gentry that were under, also under the king, but above the commoners. But if you think about it, the, the gentry at the time, and we're talking fairly low down in the gentry that would have these rights. I mean, they were leaders or landowners or whatever you want to call them of the peasantry, if you want to use that word. And so they, quote unquote, represented those people. So by giving more rights to the direct community leaders of these peasant groups, you were essentially kind of giving more rights to the people or at the very least you were, you were taking some of the power from the king and putting it somewhere else that was a little bit more local. So the first thing in the Magna Carta, and the first one that pops up in there is church rights. They wanted to, the Magna Carta to 
give the church more rights within the king's jurisdiction. Now, I, I know a lot of people would want to sneer at that because giving, more, giving the church more rights doesn't sound very good in this day and age. I don't know why. I guess just because people don't like churches, but it was very much more important at this time because you have to remember the churches were everywhere. They were all throughout the society, and it gave the people one more recourse to voice their opinion and voice things that they thought that the the crown was doing wrong. So if a common everyday person went to their priest and they said, you know, this happened and this happened and this happened and this just isn't right, and the priest is taking all these complaints and then he takes it above his head and then that person takes it above their head, eventually you get up high enough in the church that somebody can go to the king and say, like, knock it off, or you got to do this, you got to do more for your people. Now in the past, because the king had ultimate power, if some priest started complaining about the way the king was treating the people, well, the king could do what the, the um, medieval equivalent of bulldoze the church and, and throw the priest in prison. So they wanted the church rights to be, play a role in this so the church could continue to have a voice without fear. The other thing, the next thing is the protection of the barons, and that's what I was talking about, this a little bit more rights to the... To the um, gentry, I guess I'll call them. And it was protection from illegal, from le- illegal imprisonment. So if a baron went to the king and said, you can't do this, the king could just take him and throw him in his dungeon. And that was it. Now you have to remember when you're talking about barons, you're talking about pretty low down on the gentry. We're not talking somebody who, you know, eats dinner with the king every Thursday and the next minute is complaining to the king. No, we're talking about people that were maybe far away from the seat of power were controlled by the king, but then had people under him. And again, a baron is quite low. They're just above a knight. So depending on what time period we're talking about, and you got to remember this is, this is hundreds and hundreds of years ago, you know, the, the power of a baron or what he was or a knight changed over time. But, you know, there were some points in the whole thing where a knight was just somebody who had a, a really sharp axe that was knighted. So, you know, knights had power because they carried those really long, sharp knives and they had, but they had limited power to voice things to the king. So just above that is the baron and he was protected from illegal imprisonment. And along with this, he also had access to swift justice. So even if the king said, well, I'm going to give him a trial, but he was still rotting away in in the dungeon somewhere. Well, that wasn't by the Magna Carta was not allowed either he had to have a timely trial to decide his fate or find out what he'd done that was actually wrong. And that just, again, it limited the king's power to just chuck somebody in a dungeon and forget about him. And lastly, the thing in the Magna Carta, and I think there was some other stuff too, but these were the big ones, was limitation on feudal payments. In other words, taxes. So the king couldn't just tax everybody to death. Now, does this start, is this starting to sound familiar? Yeah, most countries, and especially in the United States with uh, rights and freedoms and and declaration of independence and everything, there's a lot of this same stuff coming out. Only it was given directly to the common people instead of through the channels of of the gentry. So the Magna Carta played a a big role in just, just coming up with this idea, just this concept that the king just couldn't do whatever he wanted. He actually had some limitations on his power. 
So in the United States, which is the one I'll, I'll use the most, um, because what the U.S. did with their, their Bill of Rights and, and the Constitution, it's very much builds on the Magna Carta. In fact, you probably could not get such a paper through anything today. So it's a miracle that actually you Americans got that through. And I don't think you appreciate it quite enough. We'll get a little bit more into that when we get into the lies found in society. I'll have a little bit more to say about that. But, but basically, the U.S. is only 240 years old. So you have the Magna Carta, which is 805 years ago, and then you have the American Grand Experiment that's only 240 years old. So it's, it's fairly young in comparison. And I think for too long, what's happened, the reason that things are, are starting to um, fall apart is I think the ordinary people, the ordinary people, have given over the responsibility for these rights, for, for actually making these rights stick to the ultra-ordinary people. In other words, given over to the, the movie stars in Hollywood and the politicians and the experts and the intelligentsia and the the big brains and the big universities. And I think it's beyond time now that the ordinary people just, just decide to say, you know what, I have these rights and I'm going to exercise them and I am moving this far and no further. Maybe it's time to at least mentally just say enough and just go ahead and be a, are you ready for it? A xenohomo ratio islamo pedophobic person. Because that's about the only thing they've got on you now is, is to throw these words about this person's a racist and this person's a homophobe and this person's an Islamophobe. And they got all these big words and they make them up. You notice that in that big long one that I said I had pedophobic? Yeah, one's not a word yet, but it's coming. The pedophiles are, are working the same ropes and the same gears and and pouring gas into the same machine that all these other ones have done to try and make somebody who criticizes into some kind of a phobic. It's coming. The pedophiles are going to do exactly the same thing. You just watch. So I think it's time that the ordinary people just started to get a little ornery. It's time to take control of your world, at least the world that's right around you, and it's time to take charge, at least of your own mind. And it's going to cost you. Right up front, it's going to cost you. If you're going to do this, you got to learn what it's about. You got to find these things. That's why I give these little homework assignments, like understanding the Magna Carta. It's time to get an understanding of it. So when one of these elites is looking down a nose at you because you're being ordinary and ordinary, you can look them right in the eye and say, "I know exactly what you're doing." It will give you a lot more confidence in this stuff. Now, I think what we have to do at this point is I think we have to get a better idea of the level of control that some of these people are looking for, these ones that are pulling down the statues and calling everybody names and have taken over the universities and taken over Hollywood and taken over the culture and taken everything over. I think we have to get into their mind a little bit and understand what they are. And what they are is just communists. And we have to just start calling them communists because that's what they believe in. I mean, I just, I watched something here and just a, a leader of one of the leaders of Black Lives Matter said, yeah, I'm a, I'm a trained Marxist. Just come out and said it. Well, I think you need to get an understanding of this stuff and 
learn to use your ornery, your orneriness before it's too late. Because these people are serious. These new age agitators, they don't get, they don't understand really what they're doing. They, I, I think, I honestly think these ones that are, that are leaders in these movements and they're trained Marxists and they're bragging about it and they're pulling these strings and they're working in the shadows and they're bringing all this stuff about, they need to read their history about what communists do. Once everything is pulled down, once the last statue is gone and the last book is burned and they're starting from day zero and they're going to have this grand utopia, the first thing that happens is the ones that have been paying for everything and the ones that have worked in the shadows of the shadows, they come out and the first thing they do is line these people up and shoot them. These low-level communist agitators are the first ones to die. Now, that might seem counterintuitive, but it's not really. Because these people that have agitated and got this revolution going and are, and are working in the shadows and, and, and pulling the strings on the, on the laws and the, and the common people and calling the names and convincing people to throw bricks and all this stuff, they, I think they honestly believe that, well, when they bring about this communist utopia, that they will have some higher slot, some bigger role to play. But to those that really will will grasp the control the levers of power know that those ones that are lower down that agitated for this revolution know how to agitate for a revolution and quite frankly they don't want them around they don't want anybody around that understands how it was done because they don't want them doing it again so they just get rid of them and usually a bullet to the head is the way it's done or at least that's the way it's been done historically. And I think that's this next thing here. I'm going to, I'm going to read a quote from um, uh, a book called The Gulag Archipelago by, and I never get this guy's name right, Alexandre Solzhenitsyn. And it's a fairly famous work, and I, I'm, I'm embarrassed to say it, but I've never read the entire book. I've, re- I've read stuff from it. I've read quotes from it, but I've never read the book cover to cover. It's on my to-do list. But anyway, he's talking about, and he was, uh, he was somebody fairly high up, not high up, but he was in the communist party and he really believed in it. And then when Stalin took over, Stalin was, well, he was a spooky individual and, and he was paranoid about, about people getting rid of him or murdering him or whatever. So he was great for purges. So as soon as he took power, he just purged everybody around him that, that might have agitated for a different leader than him. And then he purged the leaders of the army and then he just kept purging and it just kept going down, down, down. And basically, if you just look crossways, they were looking for enemies of the revolution and they were just rounding people up. And at certain points, it was like every day, these cars would go around. They called them the Black Marias. And they were just cars with these these uh, secret police in them, and they would just go pound on a door, and they'd haul people out, and and they would either go to a work camp or they would go to the basement of the police building and get shot in the back of the head. Thousands and thousands and thousands of people died that way. But uh, Alexandre was sent to one of the gulags, which was essentially a a, a drawn out death sentence because many many people died. There was brutal. It was way up way up in northern Siberia and it was cold and they didn't have much food and they worked them hard every day so a lot of people just died in those camps so anyway this quote um, was when he was after he was arrested and, and he was in the camps and he was basically that's what the book is about is he's trying to figure out what happened part of the reason that 
nobody resisted is because everybody felt complicit in the whole concept of the communist revolution. I mean, they were, they were cheering it on. And now that they were arrested, they didn't feel like they should have to speak up. But once you're sitting in the camp and you have a lot of time to think, this is what he wrote. And how we burned in the camps later thinking, what would things have been like if every security operative, when he went out at night to make an arrest, had been uncertain whether he would return alive and had to say goodbye to his family? Or if, during periods of mass arrests, as for example in Leningrad when they arrested a quarter of the entire city, people had not simply sat there in their lairs paling with terror at every bang of the downstairs door and every step on the staircase, but had understood that they had nothing left to lose and had boldly set up in the downstairs hall an ambush of half a dozen people with axes, hammers, pokers, or whatever else was at hand. The organs would very quickly have suffered a shortage of officers and transport, and notwithstanding all of Stalin's thirst, the cursed machine would have ground to a halt. So to my way of thinking, essentially what he's saying is, we should have been a lot more ornery about this. We should have said no, and we should have said no with everything we had. So maybe it's time to mentally pick up that poker. Maybe it's time to, you know, stop being so complacent. Maybe it's time to, especially in your thinking, maybe it's time to stop being a thought slave. Maybe it's time to get a little ordinary. Go all the way. While you're thinking about it, maybe there's other ways you can get ornery. Maybe it's not just about worrying about a, a secret police or, or, or worrying about something like that. Maybe what needs to happen is even in some littler things. Maybe it's time to get ornery and say, I'm only going to shop at independent businesses and I'm only going to eat food at independent cafes and restaurants. These chains, these, these giant corporations that pay off our our. Um, representatives, these ones that have, are, are mouthing along with the, with the, the mad communist mob and, and groveling and, and apologizing for something that they didn't do just so that they can avoid being attacked by the mob. Maybe it's time to get ornery and just forsake those big chains and those multinational companies. And if you can buy something made locally, then buy it locally. Give that extra money that you have, because often it's more money. You have to spend more money to get things that are made by ordinary people. Maybe giving that extra money to those ordinary people is actually like giving it to yourself, giving it to your own community. Maybe it's time to stick up for other people, the ones that you know are just ordinary. Maybe when somebody, you know, the mob goes after him because they made some tweet 20 years ago and then there's calls out for their, their job or something. Maybe it's time if, if there was more ordinary, ordinary people, they would stand up and say, no, no, this is, this is BS. You're not going to fire this person for something that he said that really wasn't all that bad. And it was, he said it 20 years ago. And if you do that, we won't go to your business. We won't do this. We won't do that. Maybe it's time to get loud. Maybe it's time to just, just say no. So if we're going to grasp victory from those who say that the past is bad and evil, 
So if we're gonna if we're gonna somehow snag victory from the from the jaws of defeat in this, maybe it's time to get ornery about even what you believe. And all those people that say everything has to be changed. And we're talking a very small minority here. We're talking about maybe 4% of the population that are, you know, standing up and saying we have to pull every statue down, we have to burn all these books, and we have to use our language totally differently. And, and, and they're just they're set about to change everything. Maybe it's time to get ornery and just say no. And just use those words. Like, take, for example, that whole thing, you know, they, they really didn't want to call this disease going around there was you know there was some people were jokingly calling it the kung flu or the wuhan virus which wuhan virus would would follow into the to the old way the normal way of naming these things and oh no 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 it had to be i think it ended up well it's covid19 now is but boy if you said the wuhan flu then you were a dirty racist Maybe it's time even in our language and the words we use, start using those words that they hate so bad. And if somebody says anything, just say, just get ornery and say, no, this is the word I'm using. I have the right to use whatever words I want. Too bad. Maybe it will cost you. Maybe it will cost you your job or it will cost you friends. It maybe cost you even family. But you know what? I think it's worth it. And I think it has to be done or in the end we'll be sitting burning in a camp somewhere burning with the idea that why didn't I get ornery when I could have maybe it's time to start getting independent as much as we can and like I said buying more from locals more from your home turf maybe it's time to get ornery and when you're buying something to turn the product over and figure out where it's made is it made close to home great is it made in your own country good if it's made in another country, is it a country that's friendly to yours? Or is it a country that's trying to undermine your country? If it's a country that's trying to undermine your country, then don't buy it. Do without it. Find somewhere different. Now, this is all going to take time, and it's going to take more money. So you're going to have to get ornery about this concept. Let me give you a little story. It was, it's, um, when I was uh, um, younger, I really wanted to have a greenhouse. So I built this really interesting greenhouse. It was in the side of a hill so I could take advantage of some some earth heating and I had a wood-fired boiler that I heated it with so that I could get my fuel close to home. And uh, the idea of it was eventually we would do it as a home business and, and grow bedding plants. But in the meantime, I, I put in these big planters and we were going to grow tomatoes and cucumbers. Now, my reasoning behind this was it was a little easier to look after just doing vegetables instead of having this, you know, selling stuff in the spring, this busy time, because we had lots of other things on the go. So I thought, well, I'll learn how to run the greenhouse by growing these vegetables. And the idea that I had was to grow them the same way I grew them in my garden because they taste better. And I, every person I talked to, and you get talking about vegetables, like, oh, the stuff you buy in the store, the you know, the field tomatoes from Mexico and, and stuff like that, they don't even taste like tomatoes. They, they're flavorless and they're hard and they're like red baseballs and everybody complains, complains, complains about them. So I thought, well, if I can do it organically um, and they taste like a really good tomato, then, then I'll have a hot seller on my hands. It was not to be. And the reasoning was, is strangely enough, people would taste my product and they, oh yeah, that's great. And then I, how much? And I'd tell them the price. And they'd look at me like I crawled up from underneath a rock. 
because they were 20 cents more a pound than they could pay for them in the store, even though they tasted like a tomato. Now, my reasoning was not just because I had better flavor. I could charge more. I had to charge more because the way I grew it was organic, and I couldn't produce as many tomatoes organically as you can forcing with chemical fertilizers. To give you an example, I toured a commercial greenhouse and looked at the guy's operation. He grew his plants in sawdust, just straight sawdust. There was nothing in there for the plant. Everything was sprayed at the base of the plant as fertilizers, liquid fertilizer, chemical fertilizer. So I wanted to do it organically. And what I found out was in the commercial operation, he could get like 120 pounds of tomatoes off of each plant. I know that seems hard to believe, but the type of plants they are, they keep growing tall. So as you pick the tomatoes, you just strip the bottom branches and leaves off and you just keep laying the stem down. So these stems would get like 30 feet long by the time the life of the plant was was gone. So that's how they'd get so many tomatoes from it. I grew mine in the same way, laying the plant down, but the most I could get using the best organic methods, including foliar feeding, was I could get maybe tops 50, 60 pounds off of each one. So we're talking double. But it was strange that people just, it didn't matter that my product tasted better and probably had more nutrition in it. I was 25 cents more a pound, 20 cents more a pound, and they just, they could not, they could not part with that little bit of extra money. So this is what I'm saying. Don't always look for the best deal and think that you're being really smart. Maybe what you're doing is you're cutting your own throat by buying something that's that's $5 less that's made in China than you could buy that's made in your own country. Maybe you're not as smart as you think you are getting a good deal. Maybe it's time to get a little ornery and say, you know what, this money's staying home. I'm going to pay $5 more for that part and get the one that's made in my own country by my own people so anyway it's time to get ornery already and it's time to get ornery in defense of the truth it's time to get ornery in defense of reality and in so doing since we're going to be talking about truth and reality it's time to move on to yes the lie of the day and the lie of the day is human rights are granted by the government Now, the entire premise of human rights is becoming rather a foggy issue that nobody can really seem to define what it means. It's murky. And yet people talk about it all the day long. I mean, it's been talked, it's being talked about endlessly. My rights, I have my rights. These are my rights. This should be a human right. And there's some things that they're throwing in there that have no business being a human right. Like housing. Well, everybody has a right to housing. Everybody has a right to food. Everybody has a right to education. Everybody has a right to what's next? Like uh, a mobile phone. Everybody has a right to a computer. It's, it's really easy to figure it out. If, if it's something that is made by another person, it cannot be a human right. The reasoning is if you like make housing a human right, well, that means you have to force somebody else to build a house and maintain a house so you have to take away their rights you have to force them whether it's through taxes or whatever i mean it's still forcing 
somebody else. So take away their rights in order to give somebody else rights. So anything, any of this stuff, medical care, food, housing, education, all this stuff has to be provided. It's, it's a physical thing. Human rights are those things that we're born with. Those things like freedom of speech, freedom of religion, freedom to speak your mind. I guess that would be freedom of speech. But anyway, you get the picture. They're things that they don't cost anything. That Nobody has to make it. Nobody has to provide it. It just has to be protected that people can do these things. Take, for instance, you know, in the United States, they have the Second Amendment right. You know, everybody has a right to own a rifle, but it doesn't mean that everybody is provided with one. So that's the difference. That's the first thing that you have to understand. So who's muddying these waters? Well, pretty much everybody is. The governments are muddying the waters. The media is muddying the waters. The culture is muddying the waters. And what they part that they've muddied is the source of these human rights. And they don't say like, well, they don't directly, or not many don't directly come out and say, well, the government gives you your rights. They don't actually say that in that many words, but they like to imply it. Because otherwise, where do they come from? If you're born with them, where do they come from? Well, traditionally, they come from a higher power. They come from God. If the government provides the rights, they can take them away. If society, and I'll use in quotation marks, the mob, or maybe I should say in in uh, society equals mob, the mob equals society. If they come from, from that, then then the mob or society has the right to take your rights away. If they come from God, nobody has the rights to take those away. So the other place that this gets a little bit muddy is, and the reason that people f- begin to think that the government is the source of their rights is because the government maintains the right to take people's rights away as individuals. Consider if one person infringes on the rights of another, say, goes in, knocks a hole in a window, crawls in their house, steals all their stuff. That person has just infringed on the rights of the homeowner. So the government has the right to catch that person, put them in handcuffs, haul them before a court of law to make sure that they get everything straight, make sure that that really is the right person and they really did do that. And then they put them behind bars and remove all their freedom. And if you think about it in the case of murder, the state even maintains the right to, to ultimately remove all rights and remove the person's life. So this is why people begin to think that because the government can wield this power and, and as much as it's contrary to what people are saying now and talking about defunding the police and all this stuff, I can't imagine a world where, where that kind of, where that's just removed. I mean, it just, it'll just be bedlam if that happens. Every, nobody will have rights. It'd be the strongest person, the one with the longest knife or the biggest gun or the hardest fist or the biggest muscles or the sneakiest will just be removing rights from others just because they can. That's why the government has maintained that right to protect everybody's rights as a society. So everybody gets this idea that because the government has this power, that somehow the government 
is the source of the rights, and it's not. The job of a legitimate government, or the state, if you will, is to protect individuals, to protect the legitimate rights within that nation. But the source of those human rights comes from this higher power. It comes from God. When we, and if, you, if you're not sure about that, if, you, if you're, well, think about it this way. When, uh, when the West, or at least traditionally in the past, and we see another country that is stamping all over the human rights of its own citizens, we say that's wrong. And we go to war with them. And we take away their power to do that. Well, if it's a legitimate government and the source of human rights comes from a le- just comes from governments, well, then we would have no right to do that. We'd have to sit back and say, well, yes, that government is throwing people in jail and hanging people and shooting people just at random. And, you know, the human rights suffering becomes huge. Well, but we can't do anything because those rights just come from the government anyway. No, no, no. The West is based on the idea that each person is sovereign. Each person has rights that have been given to them at birth by God. So when we see infringements on these rights, that means it's, it's a righteous battle to go in and, and remove that government that is doing that. So another thing that has muddied, I think, the waters a little bit on this idea of human rights is because they're talked about over and over and over and endlessly. Rights to this, rights to that. I got my rights. And nobody talks about the responsibility that you have. Along with those rights comes a responsibility. Part of that responsibility is to speak up. Part of that responsibility is to, is to protect others' rights. And part of that responsibility may be to use force. And maybe part of that responsibility is, like we were talking about earlier, to just get ornery and say no. It's time to get this concept a little clearer within our culture. You can't let these individuals or these institutions get away to, with muddying the, the waters with the idea of human rights and that God is the one that grants them. You know, uh, there was a, a movie, I think it was called The Newsroom. I don't even remember what year it came out, but there's a, a little clip that you can go and watch on YouTube. It's a clip of why America isn't the greatest country in the world. And and it seems like it's in vogue for Hollywood to hate on their own culture and especially on the idea of American exceptionalism. And in this little clip, it's like, you know, talking about, the, of course, the right-wing guy, which everybody loves to make either the idiot or the villain. He's talking about the, the greatest thing about America is freedom. And the other guy says, well, no, that's not really true because... Look at all these other countries that are free. Now, I don't know if he mentions Canada, but I know he mentions France. France is free. Britain is free. You know, Singapore is free. Such and such is free. Like, freedom is it's not just special in America. But that's not really true. See, the, the problem with that whole diatribe, it makes everybody go, yeah, yeah, can't, like, uh, uh, United States is not so great. We've got to quit bragging so much. But no, if you look at the American Constitution and the Bill of Rights... It's written down. It's the law of the land. Now you compare that to Canada. Now, of course, nobody in their right mind would say Canada is not a free country. However, we too have a Bill of Rights. I think it was finally put through in like the 1980s or something. It was finally written down. Because before that, we took most of the stuff from Britain. But now we've got our own. And they, I remember... I was younger and they debated back and forth and back and forth about, you know, 
rights and freedoms and all this stuff. So they wrote this thing, and it's 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 longer than the American Bill of Rights, I think. And there's all this pretty-sounding language, and it sounds so great, but buried within that piece of paper is something that the Americans don't have. It's called the notwithstanding clause. So there's all this pretty language about all your rights and freedoms, but there's a line in there that's basically a kill switch on the whole thing. In other words, at any time, the government just flips that switch and says, nobody has any rights or freedoms at all. Now, in America, I know you could do the same thing. I mean, you could declare martial law. So they say, well, what's the big deal about that? But it's a pretty big deal to declare martial law in the United States, if I understand the, the laws right. I don't know if... I don't even know if it was done during the Civil War. I'm not even sure about that. But definitely all those pretty sounding words, it's in the Canadian Bill of Rights, and you get down to this notwithstanding clause, and you may as well just rip it all up and throw it away. I mean, really. All those pretty words mean nothing when that switch is flipped. And it can be done without debate, even. So it took away this concept of that your freedoms and your rights and and your responsibilities as a human being come from God when the government has a notwithstanding clause in them. They really are saying in the Canadian Bill of Rights that the rights and freedoms come from the government. And here's our little clause that says so. So I think it's time that as part of the responsibilities we as human beings, we have to start standing up, getting a little ornery, and not let the mob decide our rights and our freedoms and our culture and our government. Decide not to let them muddy this concept. It's time to clear your mind and get it in there, front and center, that the source of my rights does not come from my government. They're given to me by my God. All right, we're down to the last one, some practical steps, and I always have fun with this one. Um, I'll just do the diatribe, and then I'll explain it. Here's the diatribe. Turn that damn boob tube off and get outside and do something. Go get the stink blowed off you. You'll learn nothing watching that thing. Going to have a country full of people with wide, soft asses and even softer heads. Yeah, that's what I heard growing up. That's my little diatribe that that puts the whole thing in there. Turn your devices off. Go get some exercise. Learn how to do something. Go find some nature. Go look at a tree. Go camping. Get out. Get away from the screens. Get away from the devices. Get away from the social media. Learn to see reality for what it is. So there you go. That's the first part, and I give it every time. That That is the most practical step that you can do to start learning to think more independently and start getting a little bit more personal agency or at least learn to think differently. So I think what I heard in my youth still holds true today. Now I usually give a couple of practical little things you can do. The last one I had was um, um, growing 
something from a seed in a pot. doesn't matter how small. How's that going? Is your plant growing? Do you have it in a nice spot? Is it thriving? Well, then good for you. If it's not, then keep trying till it does. Try and learn from your failure. Uh, so for today... I think what we'll do today is this is this is your little exercise today. Stand up right where you're at. Well, unless you're driving, don't do that. You'll get in an accident. But as soon as you can, empty your pockets out onto a table and take a look at what you carry with you every day. Now, I know there's some people that are right into this. They post pictures on the internet. What's your EDC, which means your everyday carry. But really, what is your everyday carry? Get it out. Lay it down. Have a look at it. Usually, if you're a guy, there's a wallet and your keys but then maybe write it down and then look at that list and ask yourself, put yourself in a situation. What if I was attacked by a mob and they smashed my vehicle so bad that I couldn't do anything with it and I was out, I was out on the street, basically? What would I have in my pockets that might help? Start thinking about what you carry with you every day because maybe you don't, maybe you... Maybe that's all you'll have at a certain point is just what you're carrying in your pockets or on your belt loops or wherever. And I would say that everybody needs to carry at least the basic tools for civilization. And those basic tools for civilization is a knife or a cutting edge. It doesn't have to be a machete. It doesn't have to be a giant fixed blade bowie or anything. Just a small knife, just something that would cut a string or... or cut a piece of wood or being able to manipulate the matter around you could be very important. And the other thing that you should carry is a means of combustion, fire. These two things are what sets us apart from the animals. And you can almost look at it as it doesn't matter the size of the knife. It could be just a little pocket knife and it doesn't matter the source of fire. It could be a disposable lighter. But even just carrying those two things with you, you know you have the ability to manipulate your environment by having those two things. And you could almost look at them as not being, I was going to say, not really not really religious, but maybe a little bit of a, a almost ritualistic. You have the means, you have a blade and you have fire. Those two things. Now you can just keep scaling this up. What's in your car? What do you carry in that, in that car with you? Is there stuff in there that you need that if you got stuck or if you broke down, do you have a basic, some basic tools in there? Do you, have, do you have the ability to be independent? Now, you can do the same thing with your home. You can start going through your home and, and I mean, there's going to be more tools. There's going to be more th- things that you need there. But, but what if you turn on the tap and there's no water? Do you have a means of of purifying water that you would get from a mud puddle or from a river, from a pond, or even from the back of a toilet tank when it's really old? Do you have something in there that you could clean up the water enough so you could drink it? What about when you flip the switch and there's no juice in it, there's no lights? Do you have something in your homes that will that will give you light? Do you have a good supply of the lighting devices? Do you have some candles? Do you have some lanterns and batteries and all that stuff? Do you have a way to filter water? Do you have a little bit of food? I mean, if anything, that this little little bump in the road that we had with this, this Kung flu, the Chai Com virus, should have made people realize that, you know, 
things can fall apart really fast. And if you don't have something that you need, you might not be able to just go down to the store and buy it. You might be only what you have in your closets, might only be what you have in the trunk of your car, and it might only be what you have in your pockets. Now, obviously, you can't carry a lot of toilet paper in your pockets, but just see what you have. Just see what is around you in your environment that you carry every day, that you have in your car, that you have in your home, and start thinking about it in terms of being independent. You know, part of learning to think independently is actually becoming more independent physically. And it will pass over into your mind and you'll start thinking a little bit more independently. Instead of thinking in terms of the mob, thinking in terms of society owes me something, thinking in terms of, oh, the government will look after me or somebody will look after me. No, no, you might have to look after yourself. So yeah, that's your exercise for today. What do you have in your pockets? What do you have in your vehicle? What do you have in your home? that makes you as independent as you possibly can be. So that's our podcast for today. And again, I will remind you that you can find me at anomicranger.com. That's my website. You can send me an email to animepatrolhq at yahoo.com. If you want to ask me a question or give me a comment, that'd be great. Uh, Let me know if you send me an email, if you want me to read your name out over the podcast or not um because if i get a really good email i'm i'm thinking maybe doing a show where i maybe read some emails we'll see so when you're there don't forget to subscribe don't forget to like and don't forget till we meet again keep an edge on that knife Keep those matches dry. Because life is a one-time adventure. Learn to live it that way. Until next time, Vampire Dios. Okay?